0: Welcome to Sundays with Stories. I'm Zach Rhodes, and I'm here with Stanton Peel in HD, I think.
1: (laughs) I've got a good, clean screen this morning. I'm I'm glad you noticed it, Zach. I washed off all my windows.
0: (laughs) Well, we're going to get into a deeper story, of course, today. I'm trying to start us off on something that people can relate to, catch on to immediately. And so I'd like to talk about a few current events just to let people know what's going on in the zeitgeist of addiction and recovery and that kind of harm reduction and that kind of a thing. So we'll start with Oregon uh, ostensibly decriminalizing, no, decriminalizing drugs and what that really means. So that's made the news. And the election, you know, election night, maybe one of the things that progressives had the most genuinely positive time dealing with and hearing about are that different states were up for legalizing marijuana and Oregon decriminalized the possession of all drugs. Of course, the devil's in the details, but, um, so I just wanted to talk about that. Just flag that. It happened. And maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about what that even really means, that drugs are being decriminalized.
1: Well, let's start out with um, uh, DPA actually, and the Filter Magazine actually had an article complaining about decriminalization around the United States in general. Let's uh, so for, ger- people,
0: for people who don't know, just to, just in case it's a new viewer or something like that, DPA is the Drug Policy Alliance Um
1: Uh, And it also has a Drug Policy Action Committee, which is the one that goes out and does legislative things. Um, And Filter Magazine pointed out there's something called exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Carl Hart's a great exponent of that. Um, It's the idea that um, good drugs are the drugs that people in Westchester and the Upper East Side take, and bad drugs are the ones that minorities right. and poor people take. Right. So good drugs are like uh, marijuana, of course. Marijuana is becoming psychi- a
0: good drug, yeah.
1: And psychedelics. We that so There's a psychedelic treatment craze, God bless it. And bad drugs are, the two they always use, what are they, Zach?
0: Heroin, methamphetamine, crap. Yes.
1: And the exceptionalism point is, um, how is it that we're – decriminalizing drugs around the United States, but it's drugs that, you know, privileged people take. Right. And this is just one more burden for the dispossessed. But the Oregon measure went beyond that, and DPA backed it, and they broadcast all over after the election the following headline, Drug Policy Actions Measure 110 passes, Oregon 110 acts passes decriminalizing all drugs in Oregon. But they left out one tiny, that's not, the title of the act is not decriminalizing drugs. The title of one measure 110 is decriminalization and addiction treatment initiative. And the number one argument they used is that Oregonians need more access to addiction drug addiction treatment, which as it it, the treatment they talk about is the evidence-based treatment that you and I have discussed in a prior episode. And the chief purpose of the act was to divert people caught for simple possession. Decriminalization isn't legalization. If you're caught with drugs, what happens to you? You're in the hands of the authorities and they send you to something called an addiction recovery center. So here you are minding your own business, hopefully, taking marijuana or perhaps a psychedelic or perhaps a bad drug. You get caught for possession. They don't just say, oh, uh, forget about it, and they don't just misdemeanor it and say, oh, we're going to fine you. They send you to an addiction recovery center to be assessed for treatment. And, of course, there's a a semi-coercive nature to all of this. We're converting possession of drugs by people who don't commit any other crime. In other words, if you steal something to buy your drugs, okay, the government's got you where they want you, they're going to have to do something to you. Now, simply possessing drugs allows you to be assessed for treatment. And, of course, uh, they send you to what we've already discussed, you and I, uh, evidence-based treatment, which is, is going to be a lot of more MAT. And so the United States is by far the most treated for addiction country in the world. We, we've dealt with that in the past. We have the most, by far, drug deaths. We're number one, two, and three for cocaine, meth, and opioids. And we have the most drug treatment. And uh, you and I are working in a separate sphere on developing uh, life process opioids, a life process MAT program. And where we argue that with our Aaron Ferguson, who we, spoke to last week. Um, How do you get the benefits of allowing people to subsist on a drug or transition off a drug without telling them you have a brain disease or your whole life has been permanently altered by trauma? And and last week, I I asked our colleague, Aaron, were you traumatized? Are you traumatized? And his answer was, oh, I've had a fair amount of trauma. But I'm not traumatized now. I'm okay. So, the most progressive uh, measure in the ballot, the one that DPA is plauditing all over the place, is actually another funnel into treatment. And I'll, that treatment's just going to be disease, and I am an addict-based. Yeah.
0: So, the uh, the idea is sort of anti-jail but it's not really pro life balance it's not really pro first principles or anything like that because everyone kind of knows that people will be funneled into treatment people can still be fined people will be left alone more or less when it comes to jail time but there's that there's still
1: coercion that will happen it's coercion it's they don't automatically send you to treatment Mm. but what do you think is going to happen at these addiction recovery centers? It's a co- it's a state coercion. I don't want to sound too much like a libertarian, but it's a state taking control of even more lives. Yeah. And for what? How do they know that people need it? Why do you get sent to an addiction recovery center if you're caught with a drug? Who has made that assumption? Which leads into our uh, other topic of the day. Um, how did... We decided addiction. We decided addiction had to do only with it was heroin for yeah. many. When I wrote Love and Addiction, addiction was heroin, and uh, now we've expanded it to cocaine and meth and marijuana and mostly every other drug. And I wrote a book in 1975 called Love Addiction, Love and Addiction. And when I wrote that, um, I was at the Harvard Business School, and I was interviewed by Ellen Goodman. <clears throat> Of the Boston Globe and um, a fellow faculty member at the Harvard Business School stopped me in the courtyard and started laughing. Right, love is an addiction. <laughs> and what I'm going to argue today, I'm not argue I'm going to present the evidence that love is the worst addiction. It's the most life stultifying, the most permanent, and it leads to the most death through murder and suicide. And I'm going to discuss not to bum everybody out on a Sunday, I'm going to discuss murder, suicide, and a man whose total life has been devoted to a fantasy love addiction. So grab your coffee. (laughs) Um, So our current events, in addition to discussing the Oregon Proposition 110, we're going to go over current events on Netflix for a second. The number one uh, screening... um, Show right now on USA Day's Queen's Gambit, and I'm 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 not going to need to give a spoilers alert, but I am going to. It involves alcoholism and addiction. Let's just say it takes an LPP version of how people overcome alcoholism and drugs, and I'll leave it there. In other words, <laughs> a
0: non a non uh, state led treatment version. It's the opposite of Oregon's
1: approach. Yes. Yeah. AA doesn't appear in <coughs> Queen Gambit. Right. And there's somebody else in the news. Uh, um, uh, Netflix um, is running uh, – not Netflix, I'm sorry. Um, Turner uh, Classic Movies is running a podcast series called The Plot Thickens, I'm Still Peter Bogdanovich. And it discusses Peter Bogdanovich, who's a director – most people probably wouldn't know about today, although he's still alive. He's 81. Mm-hmm. His rise and fall and his personal relationships. Um, he's being interviewed by a man named Ben Mankiewicz. And this I don't know if this comes up very often. Ben Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz is a name that's more famous in movies than Bogdanovich. And for several reasons. First of all, Ben Mankiewicz, the interviewer, his father is Frank Mankiewicz who was R.F. Robert Kennedy's press secretary yeah. and who announced when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And then he was George McGovern's campaign manager. So, you know, Ben Mankowitz's father is a well-known man, possibly not as well-known as his two uncles. Um, his great uncle, Joe Mankowitz, was a director, and um, he directed All About Eve. Buckle your seatbelts, we're in for a stormy ride. That's Betty da- my Betty Davis imitation. It's her most famous picture. And his grandfather's named Herman Mankiewicz. And on December 4th, Netflix is releasing Mank. And I can't spoil that because I haven't seen it. But it's about the issue, a strange issue people might find, whether Herman Mankiewicz is responsible for a film that's considered generally one of the greatest or or the greatest film ever made citizen Kane, Mm -hmm. uh, Orson Welles directed it in 1941. Uh, the movie, the TV, the TV movie, uh, the uh, Netflix movie stars, uh, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davis and Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz. Um, so there's a debate in in film history, um, is is there one person responsible for a film called, that's called The Auteur Theory, and uh, a great, I'm a great, great admirer of a film critic named Andrew Saris, and Orson Welles is one of his pantheon direct de- directors, and Pauline kale who's kind of a New York, was a New York intellectual, said, they're giving him credit for the film, but Herman Magus, he never, he um, never, Orson Welles never met the man on whom uh, Citizen Kane was based, W. Randolph Hearst, and Mankiewicz knew him. And in fact, the film centers around how uh, Randolph Hearst sacrificed his political career for his mistress, whose name was Marion Davis, and I don't know how to put this on this show, Herman would screwed Marion Davis. So he knew all the key players in uh, who went on to be, uh, the, who were going to be featured in Mank. And the bottom line is my point of view, and I think classically everybody accepts this, that Orson Welles is the auteur of... Uh, Citizen Kane
0: funny uh, um, Bogdanovich wrote the book on Orson Wells and Orson but without ever having met him and Orson Wells called him the, the cop was just listening to this or the conversation was you can't you don't know how long I've been waiting to meet you and I said wait that's my line and he said well you wrote the truest words ever written about me pause in English <laughs> Fun fact.
1: Welles is generally regarded as a great genius, and we'll mention his little addictions um, along the way. Um, but the point of this talk today is love is the worst addiction. And um, just there's a little addiction review we can do uh, about everybody that we've mentioned. Uh, Mank, Herman Mankiewicz is generally regarded as an alcoholic. Um how a guy writes the greatest film of all time when he's an alcoholic. Well, we'll leave that up in the air. He didn't make it to the age of 60. I mentioned Frank Mankiewicz was, um, the campaign manager, uh, for, uh, uh, George McGovern. Um, George McGovern's daughter died on the street. Uh, he wrote, uh, Uh, George McGovern wrote a book called My Daughter's Life and Death Struggle with Alcoholism. She was in a treatment program, and she was in the halfway house at the age of 45. She went out and got drunk and died frozen to death in the streets of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, That's something that calls to mind the concept of harm reduction. If a person's having a drinking problem, they shouldn't be dead on the street in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but he did say something brilliant about that, um, George McGovern. She knew what it meant to love other people, but she fell short of loving herself. Mm-hmm. So we, the la- in our last session, we discussed the interview, the one before last, where people say, hey, look how many people are dying. Uh, addiction's everywhere. And we said that's a bad outlook to take on addiction but we don't want to minimize the idea of addiction as being potentially lethal and of hurting many people. Um, And I don't want to elevate every addiction to be life-threatening, but our session today is about love addiction is the worst addiction of all, and it, in fact, kills the most people. Um, This is from Wikipedia. When it was published in 1975, Love and Addiction predated by almost a decade the notion of sex addiction and codependency popularized by Patrick Carnes and Melody Beatty. So Love and Addiction predated the current popular use of the term sex addiction and codependency. But I don't make minimize those things um, by saying that, um, I, uh, 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 this is how a Wikipedia describes my view of drugs, uh, of addiction. According to Peel's experiential environmental approach, addictions are negative patterns of behavior that result from an overattachment people formed to experiences generated from a range of involvements. He contends that most people experience addiction to some degree, at least for periods of time during their lives, He does not view addictions as medical problems, but as problems of life that most people to overcome, that most people overcome. The failure to do so is the exception rather than the rule. And now I'm going to apply that to love addiction. And um, I'm going to ask the question, um, how bad can love addiction be? And I don't know why. uh, ben Mankiewicz decided to interview Peter Bogdanovich right now. Well, it's turned into classic music, movies, so they're interested in old movies. But it's almost like a clinical case study. Mm-hmm. I find I found uh, Ben Mankiewicz extremely insightful. He's very sympathetic to Peter Bogdanovich, and he's kind of relentless. Um, and let me just describe, heroin addiction withdrawal is overstated. when. Um, Carl Hart writes about withdrawal from heroin or meth. He says it's like a bad case of the flu, which I've been saying for decades. Nobody kills themselves when they quit heroin. Nobody. No, nobody says, oh, this is so unbearable. Boom. And nobody kills themselves when they stop smoking. But people all of the time kill themselves or kill their lovers when they break up in a love relationship. And... So I'd like people to reflect on that issue. Why would a person kill themselves in the withdrawal from love? You want to give a quick response to that? Why would a person kill themselves? Well,
0: you talked about how, I think there was a Wikipedia thing quoting you, and you talked about how addiction is when somebody forms an involvement with something that's destructive, causes impairment and distress. And we talk about that on a sliding scale. And what people do with addictions is build an essence around themselves, around the thing. And with love, you can really get deep building an essence around a love relationship, you know, to the extent that you can form a belief that if you don't have this
1: other person, that you may as well be dead. Their life isn't worth living without the person. They have songs like that. And maybe to some extent all of us have gone through that, but we're going to talk about somebody who that happened to.
0: Can I I just say a couple of things that would have to be true if you're right about this? Um, So we talked at the top of the interview about Oregon and decriminalization of drugs and how that kind of really means that people are going to be doing a lot more addiction treatment and that's going to be the focus and they'll still get fined if they're drugs or enough drugs or the right kind of drugs it should then stand to reason that it would make just as much sense to you know find somebody or send them to treatment if they're caught being involved in a relationship that's destructive um and you're, so you
1: uh, well it, it, if you take the they get they get sent to addiction recovery center yeah. if they're caught with drugs right it would be almost the same as saying well if you're in a love relationship since some love relationships can kill you. Anybody who's in a love relationship can go to a addiction recovery center. Right. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Thanks for bringing it up, Zach. It, the, It's the opposite of where Carl Hart is going, actually making drug use a normal part of people's experience, which most people do, as we've reviewed. Um, it's still being isolated as especially destructive, and it needs people to be... Uh, winnowed through a treatment process. And so, you know, uh, I know Ethan Adelman a long time. He's always a great admirer of love and addiction. He's used the concept around his own experience. If you believe and understand that love addiction is the worst addiction, you can't single people out for taking drugs for treatment and police action. Right. Um, when Mangiewicz interviews uh, Bogdanovich, he's 81 um, – Bogdanovich is about 53, good-looking man. Bogdanovich is a depressed human being. He's 81. He's, he's worn down. Uh, it's almost hard to hear the interview. He's funny. He's brilliant. He's a depressed person. Um, and I want to go over his life. I mean, the title of the thing is um, the whole thing. This is a quote. Uh, There's an interview about the program before, on um, uh, uh, Turner Class at TCM, before the five-part series, and um, where Mankiewicz interviews Bogdanovich about why they're doing the whole damn thing. (laughs) And And they discuss this, and this is a quote from Bogdanovich, the whole thing about my personal life got in the way of people's understanding of the movies. That's something that has plagued me since the first couple of pictures. The majority of Bogdanovich's of, uh, life, wish they had simpler names, um, has been created by a, a fantasy relationship that ended in death. Let me just go, I'm going to go through Bogdanovich's love life and his career, hopefully in five minutes. He was married at the age of 21 to a woman named Polly Platt for nine years. She was uh, an art director. She became a a film art director. She loved him, and she was very talented. Bogdanovich didn't go to college, and in his 20s, he went to the Museum of Modern Art, and he suggested to them that he run a series of films on great directors And then he would write an accompanying description to it, which MoMA would publish. Man, for a 23-year-old, that's a lot of confidence. I mean, MoMA's a big place. (laughs) And so he did a series on John Ford, the director, Howard Hawks, and Alfred Hitchcock and wrote books about all of them. But then (laughs) in 1968, Bogdanovich got tired of that, he went to Hollywood and he became a director himself. And there's a famous person named Roger Corman who makes crappy movies. He makes crappy scary movies and crappy motorcycle movies. But you know, my Donovan said I like to direct movies and you know, I'll pay a few thousand dollars and he did. And he actually made some sleaze movies in 1968. He made them fast. One was people said it was called Targets, and people said, God, that's a damn good movie. <laughs> So based on that, at the age of 32, Bogdanovich directed a movie that is listed among the 50 greatest movies ever made. And Polly Platt was by his side, the art director. It was called The Last Picture Show. And it starred Sybil Shepard and Jeff Bridges. Um, now, there's something you need to know about uh, Peter Bogdanovich. He started having an affair. Sybil Shepard was 19 years old. So we're still not in an abnormal place. She was from Nashville, Tennessee or Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, he started an affair with her. She was having an affair with Jeff Bridges. He had to go. He had some reserve duty. And I'm going to say something about Polly Platt that most, maybe many of your viewers might not comprehend. Polly Platt was sort of glad that Peter Bogdanovich had an affair with Sybil Shepherd, Maybe I'm she, um, projected, uh, Polly Platt's dead. She wasn't interviewed for this film. Um, maybe she was thinking, that's going to happen. Why doesn't, I'll let it happen, and we'll contain that. But that's not what happened. Um, after the last picture show was made, they went, in Texas, they went back to LA, and he, was married already five or six years to Polly Platt. He loved her. She loved him. She was devoted to him. He asked um, Sybil Shepard to move to Hollywood, where he lived. And that was the end of Polly Platt's forbearance. Hmm. Um, And they moved in together, Sybil Shepard, and Peter Bogdanovich. He then, that movie was made in 1971. In 1972, he made another great hit, What's Up, Doc? A screwball comedy starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. He had a cut of the money. By now, people had heard of him. And he made all of these, the first three movies that I'm going to mention for under $3 million, And all of them pulled in $30 million or so. And this is in the early 70s. A million dollars was worth something. You could really add up a few bucks if you did that. And then he made my favorite Bogdanovich movie, Paper Moon, a depression-era comedy starring Tatum O'Neill, who also won an Oscar uh, as an eight-year-old as a supporting actress. Um, and after – we're now in 1973. Um, Polly Platt was the art director for both of those films. And – she said Sybil Shepherd couldn't show up on site. In 1974, Bogdanovich made Daisy Miller starring Sybil Shepherd, And Polly Platt did show up, but she formed an affair with another a cameraman whom she married. And I don't know what this says about Peter Bogdanovich. He was really pissed off at that. Why did Polly Platt do that? She had to do a certain number of films. She became the first registered woman art director in Hollywood. But that was it for her and Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich gave up a relationship with a productive woman who loved them to go on to another relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could ask why did he do that, but that's not the first time that's happened. Um, Daisy Miller was a flop. Um, the next movie was at long last love where there was live singing by Sybil Shepard and Burt Reynolds. And if people say, I didn't know Burt Reynolds was a singer. That was the reaction of the audiences and of critics. They just thought it was laughable. People laughed in the movies. Um, and then he made one more movie in 1976. He's making a movie a year. He's successful and rich. And this movie starred uh, Ryan and Tatum Neal. It's called Nickelodeon. And people said, you can't use Sybil Shepard in this film. She's box office poison. So he dumped her from the movie, but she remained loyal to him. Ben Mankiewicz interviews Sybil Shepherd in the series. And she only has good things to say about Peter Bogdanovich, even though we'll see that didn't end well. And I hate that she got married. She was married or had two partners and had three children, Sybil Shepherd. I hate to put it this way, but she seems to still love Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, when Ben Mankiewicz visits her home and interviews her for the series, um, I'm Peter Bogdanovich. Um, She has paintings that uh, um, Bogdanovich's father, who's long dead, had done 40 years ago in her living room. Um, Here's what happened with Civil Shepherd. Um, Bogdanovich went to make a movie in Singapore called St. Jack. And to show how devoted... Sybil Shepherd was, he got the money to make that film because Playboy had published nude photos of Sybil Shepherd that had been pirated, and as a settlement for that claim she had against Playboy, they took that money to fund the movie Boganovich made in his own called St. Jack, starring Ben Gazzara. And here's what Peter Boganovich did. He hired a Singaporean singer um to star opposite St. Jack, Ben Gazzara. And guess what he did? He had an affair with her, and he later said they weren't well-matched. He didn't really love her. Um, and Sybil Shepherd came over, and she immediately saw what happened. She returned home, and Ben Gazzara eventually made that movie, which I think is, there's two movies he made that are quite good, St. Jack. He went home, and then this is Peter Bogdanovich. He flew the Singaporean singer to move in with him in Hollywood. Now I know that there's more. There's more
0: to this, so this is not the the kicker. But you, as a uh, as a clinician, say someone brings this information to you at this point, and this is all you know about him. Are uh, you starting to get worried yet? Or are you starting to develop an idea about how you might uh, talk to him or? talk him out of anything?
1: I mean, uh, I could ask you, why would he do that? Sybil Shepherd loved him. She was a beautiful woman. She had sacrificed a lot for him. And he sort of didn't even love it. I mean, there's a tempting hypothesis here, which we're going to stay with, that uh, Peter Bogdanovich is a man who was addicted to love. He didn't do well without being with a love interest something hot and heavy that was just rising and he was willing to sacrifice everything to have that and we're going to see just how much he was willing to sacrifice
0: before you do just um i think this is an okay time to say this in your book and when you're talking now and every time you talk about being addicted to love um you're talking about being addicted to the allure of love the benefits one might get from a loving relationship without actually acknowledging or knowing or totally realizing what love is.
1: Yes, and what happens next, and Ben Ben Gazzara is now 38. This exemplifies what you said. He's not in love with actual human beings. He comes in contact with a woman uh, named Artie Stratton. Dorothy Stratton uh, was an 18-year-old who worked at a Dairy Queen in Vancouver. She met a local hustler named Paul Snyder who sent her pictures into Playboy. She was very beautiful. They made her a Playmate of the Month. And the next year, um, in 1980, she was Playboy Model of the Year. That's, That's a gig. It's got money and all. And um, since he had just gotten rid of his last lover and the Singaporean woman was gone, uh, Bogdanovich was hanging around the Playboy Mansion. He met Dorothy Stratton while he was 31 or 32, and she was 19. And he hired her to appear in the movie They All Laugh, which was made in 1981, which starred... Peter Bogdanovich made this like he made St. Jack* in the streets of New York with no funding. It starred Audrey Hepburn, who's sort of one of the five biggest actresses of all time. And Dorothy Stratton was in it. And while she was in New York filming it with him, he began an affair with her. Um, She was now 20 years old. He was 32. And then she went home to L.A., to explain to Paul Snyder that they were through. That that relationship was already going south. Paul Snyder was a, a local hustler. She, Dorothy Stratton wasn't going to stay with him. And, you know, maybe we've been lighthearted in telling this story now. Paul Snyder shot her in the head, in the face, and then committed suicide. You know, if you can't get your drug one day most people dislike that experience, but they don't kill themselves. And of course, what sense does it make to kill the woman you supposedly love? Um, so Bogdanovich had fallen in love with uh, Dorothy Stratton. She was now living with him when she went to see Paul Snyder. Um, and now... That relationship lasted for five months. Uh, Bogdanovich was now 38 years old. After she died, the rest of his life was ruined. He's 81. And if if you were to ask the question, what was going to happen with the relationship with that 20-year-old girl, very naive out of Vancouver, Do you think they'd still be married? How would you bet, Zach?
0: It depends. It wasn't trending. It didn't seem that his life was trending that way. And on the other hand, uh, it's something it was, he felt that it was something worth making himself miserable about for the rest of his life. So who knows, but I I know what the answer you want me to give.
1: I don't think so. I mean, it gets back to the question you made. The people are, addicted to an image yeah a beautiful woman talented as well at the age of 20 you can't know what's going to happen to her i mean you just imagine she would meet other people they're not going to stay married for fifth for 45 years that's not going to happen oh yeah
0: any you mean you ask anyone on the street and if they don't have to do the best detective work to say yeah probably that wouldn't have amounted to anything all i mean but he devoted and he
1: devoted the rest of his life to her memory yeah so, um, in the meantime, he went bankrupt. Um, he produced uh, They All Left on His Own, but he had a distributor. He didn't like the way they were advertising the film. He said he would distribute it himself. That's a hard thing. You can make a movie on your own. It's a hard thing to distribute a movie on your mm-hmm. own. He failed. He spent a fortune. He had, a, he had to mortgage his house or houses, and he went bankrupt. And he then devoted the next four years of his life to writing a book called The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960 to 1980. And it's a, I read the book. It's a strange, it's a clinical study because when you're reading it, obviously you're thinking people took advantage of her. Uh, Playboy took advantage of her. Hugh Hefner took advantage of her. Her crazy husband who killed himself, uh, T- Snyder, took advantage of her. But wasn't Peter Bogdanovich inappropriately taking advantage of her as well? Hmm. His career as a director, I, I liked um, They All Laughed, like St. Jack. I think they're very good movies. Um, Peter Bogdanovich never really directed again. He made one more successful movie because he was bankrupt now. So he had to make some money. He made a very successful movie called Mask, starring Sher and Eric Stoltz about a a boy who had a deformity and how he formed a community of people around bikers. Um, He he died young. This isn't a spoiler. This movie came out in 1985. And that's the last good movie that Peter Bogdanovich made the rest of his life. The last 42 years and 43 years of his life have been devoted to mourning the memory of a relationship he had with a 20 year old. That was, you know, he didn't have total contact with her because she was in a precarious situation that lasted for five months. And he's depressed to this day, and he gave up a relationship, other relationships with women who did love him. And now, Peter Bogdanovich lives with um, Dorothy Stratton's at the time this fil- uh, video is being made, at its time this podcast is being made, with Dorothy Stratton's sister Louise Stratton, because Peter Bogdanovich married uh, Dorothy Stratton's younger sister. She was nineteen when he married her. She was twenty-nine years older than younger than him. And he married her for 13 years. He now, even though they're divorced now, he lives with Louise Stratton and Dorothy and Louise Stratton's mother. Even people that don't think psychologically must think, man, that's crazy. A weird, uh, yeah, weird arrangement. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich was ruined as a director. It was, and it was guaranteed when he did... Polly Platt was his collaborator of all successful films when he dumped her for Sybil Shepard. In 1998, the National Film Preservation Board declared the last picture show, which he made with Polly Platt and uh, Sybil Shepherd, which was made in 1971, um, put it on the National Film Registry, awarded to only the most culturally significant films, and then Peter Bogdanovich went on to make a couple of successful films, but then to ruin his entire career and in his entire life devoted to a fantasy he developed around a 20 year old. Hmm. And so I'm answering the question, how serious and how severe can a love addiction be? And it can be the most devastating, the most life devouring. Besides, it caused a murder and a suicide, and it consumed Peter Dogdanovich. I um, I read uh, the Unicorn book. Um, I listened to the podcast. I, I don't know why Ben Mankiewicz made this, uh, but I view it as a clinical case study, mm. and I find it devastating. I couldn't, after Dorothy Stratton... is murdered. Boy, I had a hard time listening to last uh, segment of that. Because? It's so, I can't stand, I mean, I'm in the addiction business because I can't stand people being addicted and dying and ruining their lives. I can't take it. And here's a man who's 81 years old. He didn't die. And he was a brilliant man with great possibilities and he threw it all away he Threw all the love away in his life and he threw his career away for what how did that happen and it's a certain bit of a mystery the, well I'm going to I'm going to end this unless you wanted to say something uh, I, I the, know we get thousands of fan mails and I know people say we need to have Stanton sing more
0: that's yeah they usually say that
1: so uh, I'm just going to sing a couple of songs Um,
0: Before you get to the – before you sing us out, just uh, from a clinical perspective – not a clinical perspective, from a common sense perspective, what is it about the relationship between drugs and loving people or wanting to love people? Or let's say the relationship between a person yearning for a drug as the thing that they clutch to preserve their lives or a person yearning for another human being, that they're both – kind of warm and fuzzy things that you can become accustomed well, to develop, develop both, a relationship with. They uh, both
1: but- provide immediate, instantaneous, comprehensive, overwhelming feelings. Heroin does that and love does that. Um, it gives you a purpose in life. It gives you a feeling that you're okay. It gives you an identity, actually. It makes you feel the worst devouring addictions are ones that make you feel okay about yourself, that you can turn to it and it'll say you're a human being, you deserve to live.
0: And so what do you mean when you say then that given that the whole process is the same, no matter what the, addict, the object of the addiction or the um, – what do you mean when you say that love is the worst addiction? We can pull from this case study, and I know you have just did a, kind of a proof of that, but – what are the elements if you could just name them now that well, are the five love- elements
1: in their addiction is that it provides a comprehensive experience and the best drugs do that and love provides an overwhelming experience. It obviously did for a time for Peter Badanovich. um But It does it and it um, allows people to get certain feelings that they can't otherwise have in life. Hmm. But what makes it an addiction, and these are essential feelings about being okay about yourself, is that the feelings depreciate. Those feelings that you turn to the addiction for depreciate over time. And that's why, they call addiction they say it's characterized by withdrawal intolerance because you can't give it up and it becomes has a lessening effect over time and love is the same way and peter bogdanovich is an exceptional example of that um he couldn't really carry out a sustained love affair um we know that with polly platt we know that with sybil shepherd we know that with the woman who he starred in singapore uh, in in um saint jack and That's why we would bet our lives the same thing would have happened with Dorothy Stratton and the same thing did happen with her sister. I mean, he was married to her for about a decade, which is pretty long for him, although that was a substitute. That's like methadone, marrying her sister. But the feelings of excitement and overwhelming, comprehensive beatitude that come with heroin when you start it and that come with love, they dissolve over time for a number of reasons the real world, and the other thing that makes an addiction addiction is that being involved in the addiction actually depreciates your ability to deal with the world. And we saw that uh, Peter Bogdanovich regularly gave up opportunities in life because of his love addictions. He gave up his whole career, in fact, for them. So the characteristics are an overwhelming experience that provides necessary gratification and gives you a sense that your life is okay, but that in fact depreciates your existence and makes it harder for you uh, to perform well so that you become more desperately attached to the thing so that in the case of love addiction, what's unbelievable People, when they give up heroin and smoking, don't remain addicted to heroin and smoking. He remained addicted to his love addiction even after the woman was dead. It's stunning to me. It's overwhelming. If we could pull back ourselves and look at these things objectively, we'd see that love is the worst addiction. All right. And that's All right, simple. I'm going to sing our way out. Sing us out. <clears throat> A little bit of soap will wash away your lipstick on my face a little bit of soap will never 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 ever erase the pain in my heart and my eyes as i go through the lonely years a little bit of soap will never wash away my tears and now, the greatest love addiction song of all time, "The Tracks of My Tears," that was written by Smokey Robinson. And tracks refer specifically to the marks heroin addicts get in their arms. People say I'm the life of the party because I tell a joke or two. Although I
2: might be the laughing. I had blue So take a good look at my face You'll see my smile looks out of place If you look closer it's easy to trace the tracks of mine seeming like i'm heaven for